The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. We have heard many stories about how people come to photography. Some discover photography at a very young age, while others come to it after the birth of a child or upon retirement. Some have had photography as their first and only career, while others transition from another career path. Regardless of the journey, one thing seems to always be true. There is not just one way to lead a photographic life. Omar Z. Robles began his young adult life with dreams of being an entertainer, studying the art of mime under the tutelage of the legendary Marcel Marceau. But eventually, he found himself behind the camera creating images that blend the studied eye of a street photographer with the informed precision of a photographer capturing dancers in flight. His journey and his work are both unique and inspiring, making his story a welcome addition to the TCF archive of conversations. Well, Omar, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I have, first, I have to compliment you on an awesome beard. I don't know if you still have it. But from what I've <laughs> yes, seen, it, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I still do have it. <laughs> well, I wanted to start off with one of the things that I find most interesting uh, about you, because I talk to a lot of photographers who, who for whom photography wasn't their first love or passion. And I discovered that it was uh, that you were trained to be a mime under Marcel Marceau. I, I want you to tell us a little bit about what drew you into wanting to learn how to be a, become a professional mime. What, what was the allure there? Uh, well, growing up, I was fascinated by the capacity or just the capability, sorry, about the body, right? Um, and I remember just... Um, even when I was playing with my G.I. Joes, for example, um, you know, my, my action figures would do somersaults and would jump out of the cars and things like that. And I was really just amazed by the, by the, by the possibilities that, you know, like just weightlessness, basically. And I think that's something that, that, that it's a theme that's carried through uh, my entire life, you know, that, that idea of, of, of defying gravity, basically. Mm-hmm. So when I was around, I think... Around 11, um, I got into gymnastics and, and I was a gymnast uh, and I trained for, for several years. And then at some point I discovered, and also, you know, going back to, to a little bit back in my childhood, I also liked telling stories. Actually, I, I like to tell jokes a lot and my family hated it because <laughs> I was basically an encyclopedia of jokes. And they were really bad jokes, too. They were not even funny, but they were very long jokes. And, I, and it was on purpose because I had, for me, it was fascinating to be able to capture them for, a, you know, an X amount of time and then just throw a punchline and then have them go like, oh, 
thanks for wasting my time. <laughs> you know, and so really for me, the joke was on them. So I had that, that you know, like thing for storytelling as well. So after I, 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 I did gymnastics and, and I got a little bit more comfortable and, and with the body as a, as a tool for for expression, I discovered mime and I found it extremely interesting because it was something that was combining my passion for the body as well as my passion for storytelling. And it was very interesting just to, to because you know the, the whole idea of mime is really, it's not how many people perceive it as charades, but it's really more about evoking emotion through the body in, in a way that you can tell a story without without needing words. Why? Because we relate very naturally to 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 the physical language, you know, to the body language. Um, you know, your body knows how it feels, how it looks when it feels sad, for example. Mm-hmm. So when you see that on stage, uh, on stage represented, you can identify in a very primal way. I think. So, you know, Marceau used to have this phrase, he, he was saying, it's like, we want to try to make the audience breathe with us and be mesmerized by what we do. The, the whole idea of telling stories in, in, in mime is really kind of fascinating. And I wonder if there's something that is comparable to, you know, an author trying, not using too many words, you know, not trying to be too expressive with language and, and sort of losing the reader. Is there an equivalent of that when it comes to to mime? Is less is less more? Yes, definitely less is more. And that was uh, another one of my teachers who used uh, used to say, you know, when a play is done, when you cannot cut any more out of it, you know. So we we always strive to have economy of movement because like 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 I was saying before, you know, you don't need to add too much elements to certain things when the viewer already know how it feels, you know, how it looks like to be sad or to be happy or to be angry. Um, so economy is a very important part. Um, and, you know, Marceau used to say also that when you try to be smart or you, when you try to be clever, I guess, you can complicate things. So the the simpler you you get, the better. The thing, though, is that it's very difficult to be simple. It's very difficult to be essential. And that's why there is a big difference between what pantomime is and what mime is. And that's a whole other conversation mm-hmm. because it's a, it's, it's a long, I guess, argument in the, in, the theater world, in the theater world. But mime as an art form seeks to, to share the essence and evoke the essence. Where pantomime, for example, it's more narrative and it's more, I, can, I cannot find the word right now. You know, a pantomime, you know, it just tries to add a lot of things and a lot of movement. And that's what people would think, oh, that's charades, you know, and, yeah. and that's, it's more phony in a certain way. Where, you know, if you see someone like, like Charlie Chaplin, you know, he's the master of, of economy. If you see one of his movies, you know, there was not a lot, you know, there was not a lot of, um, uh, how can I say that? He was very essential in what he did, and and yet, you know, you could you can follow the story and and be happy for the characters, or be sad or relate to them just you know like by by watching him uh, be and and not necessarily have him add too many things. 
I don't know if I explained myself. I think it was a where you see there was a conciseness to what he was doing. Yes, I mean, yes. It, you just knew immediately what he felt. Um, yeah. Not just by his facial expression, but his body language in relation to not just another character, but sometimes just some physical thing that he was contending with at the moment. Yes. When it came time for you to sort of pick up a camera, how did that awareness of sort of the subtlety of motion, of gesture, help you when it came to making photographs? The interesting thing about photography is that photography should have, in in a way, the same the same goal as, as the mime in a way to express a story, to tell a story or evoke an emotion only visually without the, without the necessity of words or without the necessity of explaining it. That's why sometimes, for example, I find captions a little bit unnecessary because in my perspective, you should just be able to share your point of view or even if it's not exactly what you were trying to show, but... Mm-hmm. Meaning, meaning that the audience will always, you know, have their own perspective of things because they see it with their own experience, right? But you should not have to tell the audience, you know, what exactly what happened or how it happened or unless it's extremely necessary because it, it details a specific context. Otherwise, I think, you know, photography should seek to be... I don't want to say self-explanatory, but mm-hmm. but it should be able to evoke emotion without anything you know other than what you see, and that's I think where I found very much the parallel between photography and mime. Did that grow out? Did that perspective that you just described come out of feelings that you had about your work when you were working for the magazines and, and newspapers when you were working as a as a journalist, where you had to create a a singular or multiple photographs to tell a story, but you were also having to be responsible for like the caption information to help flesh out the entire story of the images. Well, you know, sometimes for certain, for some stories you had to, but I, I think I was lucky enough. You know what? I was lucky enough to the, the first, the first magazine that I worked for was the, the very first job that they gave me was to do social events, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of like galas and things like that. And almost every other magazine that was back in Puerto Rico, almost every magazine in those events, they had people, they asked photographers to take pictures of people posing. So, you know, you would get pictures of of all the socialites just looking pretty in front of the camera and just smiling. And my editor forbade, you know, forbade me from doing that. And he's like, no, you're not going to do that. You just, I just want you to have people in action, people talking, people mingling, you know, people just reacting to each other. And that was even, even though it was something very simple, but it it was my first jobs. And it really taught me to, to seek for that, to seek for action, to seek for, for moments that were sort of self-explanatory or at least, you know, they were evoking something and you could really see what was going on in that party as opposed to just who was there. Mm-hmm. You see the difference there. So those were my very first assignments. And then eventually I ended up doing more um, politics stuff. And then when I moved to Chicago, I ended up doing more uh, arts and entertainment. I kind of always fought the writing thing. So how did the, what, what inspired the transition to pick up photography rather than continuing as an entertainer? I don't, I don't want to say it was 
there was one moment that I took the decision, but um, when I came, I, so I started in France and, and after living in France and, and after I went to Poland, I went back to Puerto Rico because my visa, my visa in, in Europe expired and I, I, I couldn't do anything else to, to renew it and I just came back to Puerto Rico. My parents just got in my case. It's like, you have to go back to college, you have to study something. I was like, thanks guys. I just, you know, I just did. Uh, but of course, you know, uh, you know, they just didn't see theater as a, as a thing or, or, or as a full-time thing, I guess. And, um, and at some point I just caved just to give them the pleasure or just to have them shut up, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> about it. Um, I, cause I looked into it and, and I only had like just a few more credits to go. And that's where I took a photography class. And my professor, um, really, encouraged my work and he he saw something in in what i was doing and um it really encouraged me to just try something else and i for a while to be honest i fought it because i didn't want to leave mime behind you know you know mime was something that i had done for for the larger part of my life and and i just didn't want to leave it behind so at some point i just started doing it just for fun then it became where where i did a few gigs here and there and when I moved to Chicago, I actually moved to do a play. But after that was done, I just had to find a way to make ends meet. And, um, and then I started doing more photography. Uh, and that's when I got hired by the Chicago Tribune, uh, OI, the, um, their Spanish publication, basically. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's sort of when I started doing it more, uh, more full time. And then when I moved to New York, it was honestly social media that made me turn. And the reason why it's very specific is because with theater, you have to work so much just to just for one play, for example. Even if it's just for one night, you have to work for a month, maybe two months. Um, and then you need a producer, you need, you know, a sound person, a, a lights person. You need, you know, you need a whole lot of production just for one single play. Even if you're solo on stage, you need all those things. Um, and then you need to get the audience there, of course. Um, so when I discovered social media and, and Instagram in particular, I found that there was a community there and there was an audience there ready to be, you know, already receptive. It, it did take work, but it was work that I was more in control of as opposed to theater where there was very, there's not so many things that I was in control of. Um, so little by little, I just, you know, got more into excited about the idea of sharing my work and having, you know, in a way instant, I don't want to say just instant gratification, but instant feedback. It was like, instead of when I was finishing a play and I got the applause, you know, it was like taking a picture, going back home, getting it ready, posting it, and then getting applause by applause with each like in a certain way. So little by little, it was something that I found more and more attractive. And to a certain point that I found that I could also make some profit out of it. Yeah. But you're, you're popularly known for your dance imagery that you shoot a lot in like the streets of New York and, and other cities. But was a precursor to that an exploration of street photography before you started incorporating dancers in, into the scenes? 
Oh, yes, yes, yes. So how did that begin for you? Uh, so, curiously enough, I was very intimidated by shooting people. Um, I could shoot people for assignments because I had to do it. Um, but, you know, and more than I had to do it, I had an excuse to do it. You know, I, I if they asked me why you're taking pictures, I could say, well, you know, like I'm taking a picture for this story and people would be like, oh, OK, I understand. Uh, or, you know, sometimes I was just at a place to take a portrait of a specific person and whatnot. So, you know, I had a motive. But when it came to my own work, I was really intimidated by just asking someone to take their picture or just being, you know, in front of a person. Um, so I discovered street photography uh, just looking through Flickr and different on- online websites. And, and I found very interesting because it really evoked an emotion and it really was the representation of a moment that that was very unique each and every time that I saw one of those pictures. I met this woman in Chicago. Her name was Candace Casey. And Candace was this very sweet woman. Um, and she did a lot of travel photography. And I, I, I saw one of her exhibitions and then we ended up becoming friends. And one day, you know, I asked her, hey, Candace, how do you shoot people? I mean, aren't you intimidated by it? And she said, like, it's, it's not that much of a thing. You know, you have a camera. It's a fairly large object that they can see. You point it, and if they have an an objection to you pointing the camera, then you then you put it down if you feel like you know it's not appropriate, and that's about it. Otherwise, people will let you know if it's fine or not. And I, you know, and I saw that as a pretty pretty um, straight through, or, or you know, just pretty direct answer. And and I took that as a as a dogma in in a certain way and Mm -hmm. i just started going out every day and just lifting my camera and if i saw that people were uncomfortable uh, i would put it down unless i felt like the moment was more important and and i you know and also i got myself uh, into the laws that about street photography and i knew that i was not doing anything wrong particularly so so i i I just stayed at it and i really loved street photography and i did it exclusively almost for about three I want to say three to four years before I started working with dancers. So definitely the street photography really set the grounds for this type of work that I do. And what I like to say is that I'm actually just placing the dancers where the normal people in the street would be. Because what I'm trying to create, it's an environment or aesthetic where the viewer can say, oh, I work through the streets every day. I never thought that there was a different alternative to the way I walk the street. Mm-hmm. And what was the allure of working with a dancer rather than, say, a model or just a, a normal person that you would pose in the street? What what do they bring to, to the photographs that you can't uh, achieve otherwise? Well, what not a whole lot of people know is that this series actually started as a self-portrait project where... I was trying to create that that aesthetic that I was talking about, about, you know, weightlessness in, in the everyday workplace or area or, people, you know, places that we all walk uh, every day. Um, and I would just set my camera and uh, on a tripod and, and shoot myself um, in the street doing these things. Of course, that's a very 
<laughs> that's one of the ways that you can lose a camera, um, <laughs> right? So, and also, you know, it just it's just a little bit cumbersome to do that because um, you have to go back and forth, back and forth all the time. So at some point, I decided just sort of to outsource it. And I met with this um, white dancers instead of a models because I had physical training. So I thought that the only person that could, or the only subjects that could potentially carry the vision that I was trying to carry with my self-portraits with people that also had knowledge and, and, and expertise in the body, uh, particularly jumps like uh, dancers do. So, so basically that, 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 that was it. So, so tell me about those initial moments when you are sort of, you know, you, you have this sort of vision for what you initially have in mind and it, it usually evolves, you know, you may have an initial spark but then, especially when you're collaborating with someone else, that kind of evolves and changes. Can you speak about what the initial germ of it was and how it sort of developed as you started working with more and more dancers? So in the beginning, I think the poses were less stylized. And what I was trying to look for was that idea of just levitation, right? So it was it was stylized, but not, not dance stylized. I was just trying to look for... You know, like sort of floating jumps where where it was not so balletic in a certain way. It was more just, you know, like flowy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but precisely working with dancers, then I realized, you know, it's like there's there's many many more possibilities that I can explore within their range of movement. And little by little, I started to get more into actually educating myself, even though I did have a, a dance background because dance was part of my training back in France, um, you know, I started going back to that, to those roots and, and educating myself a little bit more and just uh, trying to refresh my memory from, from, from the things that I had learned. And little by little, I started directing more as if I was directing a play or, or as if I was directing on stage as opposed to just directing as a photographer. Yeah, because I heard one of the things you said in, in another interview was that you had to sort of, inform the dancers that you didn't want them to pose but that you wanted them to move Uh, yes what is what is that what's the difference how does that look like in your in your camera for for starters if you're trying to stop a pose um you know dancers are moving right so when you do whatever movement they do it's meant to be a movement it's never meant to be stopped so if you stop it you are one you you you're shopping the possibility of the movement because for them to be actually able to f- sort of freeze that moment then they have to shorten it uh, and make it uh, a little bit they just look stiff uh, on camera because it, it looks contrived because you you're trying to stop at some point to find balance whereas opposed to if you just go through the whole range of movement it just looks more fluid and at the same time it it just projects more energy. And that's what I'm looking for, to have like that explosion of energy as opposed to just something pretty. Was was that sort of difficult to be able to sort of communicate to people or was it something that they immediately got? They were super happy when I tell, you know, every time I tell them that, because I, I, you know, I go through this process, I, you know, on through every shoot, especially if it's someone that I haven't worked with before. Uh, they are extremely happy because, again, they, they feel that they can just do the movement as they would normally do as opposed to try to stop it. Uh, because, you know, a lot of them are used to work with photographers that maybe are not so 
they don't know that much about dance. Mm-hmm. So they will ask the dancers, actually, can you stop? Can you stop at this point? Just because they want to at least be able to catch that moment because that's the moment that they sort of see that the picture is sort of happening. So usually dancers feel a little bit uncomfortable working in that sense because they feel like they have to stop at something that normally isn't meant to to be stopped. When they feel that they can have that that freedom of just like going through the whole range of movement and, and just just they just feel more relaxed and and you can see it in the pictures where where, where really it's more of a you know an explosion and, and a sense of freedom that they are experiencing and, and you add you know a, a wrench into the mix because you're you're doing all this on a public street often on a street that is very busy with people and traffic and so there's a lot to think about when you're trying to make the the, the photographs talk talk to us about you know the complexity of trying to create these images in the in the chaos of a of a modern city. <laughs> well, the first thing that I have to think about is to stay alive, um, <laughs> both me and the dancer. I I I I risk it most of the time, but but it's it's not that. So, for example, we will shoot when the light is red um, or, or, or green for us, right? To be in the street and there's no cars coming at that moment. So I try to be as safe as, as I can in that, in that sense. But then there's definitely other things that you can do, like shoot early in the morning where there's just less traffic or then just find less less uh, transited areas in, in the city. Uh, sorry, and you, and you do different things like that. But sometimes what... Other times what I just do is just I use what I have and if those are the elements that are out there, then I just incorporate them in, in, in the photos because then they just become more dynamic. So to give you an example, when I was in, in like I don't mind crowds and I don't mind people in the pictures because I actually think that they that brings a lot of life to the story. Um, but sometimes it just becomes very difficult. So there was remember when I was in Mexico there was just like an immense amount of people. It was like even think New York and multiply it by five. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a lot of people in the street. So what I did, I just started shooting with very slow shutter speeds and have the dancers like more static. And then I, 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 I shifted the, the movement from the dancer to the, to the passerbys. And then the dancer just became static and I would, because I was shooting with like slower, shorter speeds, then I would get the people in, in, in you know, in like right. that motion blur. Um, and that created a whole different dynamic. So sometimes you just use what you have. And, you know, especially like, for example, if, if the street is, it's, it, it's um, there, there's like traffic and it's not moving, then that's great because then I can have the dancer there in the middle of the traffic. And then again, that just expresses another uh, point of everyday life that, we can sort of all identify and we all unanimously hate, you know, like traffic and have something different there that, that breaks the monotony. How did those years of practicing street photography help you to make your images unique to, to you? What were the things, the skills in terms of your awareness of maybe background and light and composition help you when it came to incorporating a dancer and movement into the into the whole shot well you know 
one of the greatest things about street photography is that you have to think on your feet. You have to think fast and you have to make decisions based on light, based on, on background, like you were saying, but also based on what's happening, you know, based on action. Uh, so street photography really helped me be comfortable with being on the street in uncomfortable situations, while at the same time, really learning how to take advantage of the light. Um, and that's what's really interesting because a lot of people, you know, one of the one of the questions that I get the most people ask me is like, what kind of lighting do you use? And I just say nothing, you know, when you're shooting street photography, you, you don't use, you know, artificial lighting unless you are like Bruce Gilden, you know, kind of style. Uh, otherwise, you know, you, you use what you have available to you. So again, I, if I want to, if I want to have more dynamic light, then that's why I shoot in the mornings or late in the afternoon. Street photography really shaped um, that sense and, and to really understand and use light um, to my advantage in, in everyday situations. And how do you choose the people that you photograph? Because that's who you work with is always in, in, important. And I you know a lot of times you may be choosing people that you've not worked with before, you don't have a history with. So how do you sort of decide who and how to collaborate? Um, yeah, that's a great point um, because no matter what discipline uh, of, of uh, photography you're pursuing, especially if it's collaborative work, you have to make sure that the, the people that you work with are, are going to be able to carry, you know, the image that you have in mind uh, or just, you know, have the, have the technique uh, that you need uh, for, for, the, for the photo to be successful. So one of the things I do is basically just stalk people online. Um, I go through, you know, I just go through Instagram a lot and, and, and just go through their portfolio, go through the pictures and see what they have and, and, and what they're good at. I do get a lot of people requesting me, uh, you know, to photograph them, but unfortunately sometimes they just don't have the, the, the qualifications that, that I'm looking for in terms of technique, in terms of extension, in terms of their jump. So I make sure before I approach anyone or before I, I say yes to any one particular request uh, that I look through their portfolio, look through through their images and and see, you know. And because I do have a performance background, I know exactly what I'm looking for in, in that sense as opposed to just say, hey, that looks pretty, maybe, you know, just because it's a dancer doing it. Because sometimes that's that's the general perspective of people. They maybe they don't understand or know dance technique. So they just see a pose that they think is sort of pretty in in, 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 in any dancer. Mm -hmm. Um and then you realize maybe that it's it's not necessarily the best. Do do you have to sometimes deal with the dancer who like maybe like a certain model knows what her best side is or you know her you know how some people want to give you a certain look because they feel like that's the most flattering for them. Do you have to sort of push through dancers who have, for lack of a better word, a sort of repertoire of positions or movements that they think is best for them? Not really. The, the greatest thing about working with dancers for the most part is that dancers are trained to follow. That's their training. They're trained to follow a choreography. They're trained mm -hmm. to, to, to receive instructions. So, for the most part, uh, most of the dancers that I work with are very um, receptive and they're very open to just trying different things. Um, and yeah, there are certain things for sure that just just from a strictly 
physical point of view where one leg will extend more than the other so they feel more comfortable doing things you know with the left leg than the right leg but that's just nature you know you you're always you know more comfortable with one hand than the other you know um, so so i understand that and, and then you know i also take take lead uh from that because again we're, we're talking about collaborative work so i, I also want to make sure that they feel comfortable with what they're doing but as far as having sort of let's say divas uh, i've been very lucky not to work with any uh one like that at least tell me about uh, another project that i saw on your website which is uh, sunday, sunday best which is a series of portraits yes uh so sunday best was when i was um it was it was it was an exploration of my neighborhood basically i lived i was living in harlem or i still live in harlem but i was living in a particular area of harlem and whenever i would go out sometimes during sundays i would just see people with this you know really beautiful garments and hats and and uh, it was a very interesting vibe uh, um, during during sundays so it was an exploration of that but at the same time it was an exploration of me trying to get out of my shell where, like I said before, I was very intimidated by shooting people when it was not for work. And um, while I was doing street photography, it was okay, but there is still, you know, some kind of outside look when you're doing street photography. You know, you're not necessarily engaging with people. Right. So I kind of wanted to explore that side. And, and again, I had... I met up with a friend um, or, you know, a photographer that became my friend uh, who's Roddy Roy. And Roddy used to do that kind of work uh, a lot back then. He still does that kind of work. Um, Roddy is more of a photojournalist and, and, and uh, you know, I, I approached him a little bit about it. And again, he, he said, you know, like people will say yes or people will say no, you know, it's not such a big thing to it. You know, if they say no, you just keep walking. You, you didn't lose anything. If they say yes, then, then great. But then, you know, and I decided to give myself that challenge and just, you know, like try it. And, uh, and I went out one morning, one Sunday and, and sort of with the idea of like, I'm going to perhaps do this and, you know, but a little bit scared too. And then suddenly I saw this man with like a boa, you know, a feather boa mm -hmm. hanging up of his neck and then with like a very cool hat. And I was like, all right, if you don't ask this guy, <laughs> you're, it's, it's like, if you don't ask this guy, quit. You know what I mean? So I just, you know, like asked and he said yes. But the funny thing is that I was so into my mind that he was going to say no. That I was like, oh, okay, thanks. Oh, wait, you said yes. Hold on. Let me actually take the picture now. Uh, so yeah, he said yes. I took the picture and, and, uh, and then from that, you know, I was very encouraged. I said, all right, we got one, so let's keep going. And, and, I, and I sort of got into going out every, every Sunday morning and kind of gave myself like a goal every day. It's like, all right, let's try to shoot at least five or at least 10 and really, you know, take, take notes or just take their story. And you don't really see it on the, on the website, but if you go really deep into my Instagram, you will see those posts and I would actually write a little bit about the story because again, in this case, the context was important. So I would just write, you know, like a short transcript of, of our conversation or something important or interesting that the person told me. Oh. 
and yeah, it was it was really a self. It was an exploration of of the neighborhood, but it was also an exploration of of just you know giving myself that opportunity. Well, you spoke about Instagram, and it's played a big role in your in your career in terms of you getting your work out there and creating opportunities for you as a as a photographer. Talk to us about you know how you began using it and how that sort of evolved and changed and what and what the results been. When I started Instagram in the very beginning, um, I didn't exactly understand the platform, and and I only saw it strictly as a as a promotional tool, right? That was back when I was in Chicago, and I thought, well, you know, I will post, you know, like my headshots there for people to to see it and hire me. But as the more and more I got into it, I realized that that's not really what people are there for people are not there to hire a, a headshot photographer for example or at least back then that the community was very different and i met this guy in chicago his name is uh ivan vega and uh, he was also curiously you know if he was also an actor but he also loved doing photography and mobile photography specifically back then and he kind of showed me the community side of Instagram where people would just do Insta meets and, and, and photo walks and get together outside of the platform. And then I found something very interesting because I saw a sense of community, a sense of, of in a way, a sense of belonging. So it was not just about posting pictures, but it, it was really about sharing pictures, um, which is very different, right? And my, my outlook on the platform change, and then I was starting to look more for, for for that community. When I moved to New York, that's basically how I met people. I just started to look for for local Insta meets and and photo walks uh, around, you know, that 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 were based around Instagram or just the Instagram community, and and that's how I, I you know I started to be to 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 make friends. Uh, but at the same time that I was you know making friends, I was networking. And, and little by little, you know, you, you do those things enough, you start growing an audience and, and, and also growing what I, in a certain way, you know, it's like, it's also like having your own focus group, right? You, you do something and, and you have an instant reaction as a, you know, to know if it's successful or not. That's really how I, how I started growing and learning more and more the platform from, just being a media centric thing to more like a community based and and that's very important i i i feel because a lot of people don't understand that social media has two sides of it it has a media side that a lot of photographers emphasized in but then it's also about social right it's also about being communicative about about being part of that community um, and you cannot just pretend or think that because your pictures are good, people are just going to like them, so to speak. You know, right. you have to also interact and engage with people. You know, when we were talking about earlier about your career as an entertainer and being a mime, and there's, there's a lot of discipline that's called upon uh, when you're doing that kind of work. And, it's, and, it's, and I'm sure that it's pervaded all of your photography, but when you think about what you learned back back then what do you think is sort of the greatest thing that you learned from being a performer that is absolutely invaluable to you as a photographer that's a great question uh 
you know, readiness, I, I would say. Well, there's it's readiness. I would say that that's the best way I can put it. You can never, I don't remember who it was, but someone, and I, I, when I was when I was studying mime, someone once told me a, a quote from, but I don't remember who it was, but he would say that to do an impromptu speech, you need a lot of preparation. You need weeks of work to do an impromptu speech, you know, to, so, so, so basically in order to improvise, you need to, to be prepared. You just, you cannot just say, I'm going to wing things, mm -hmm. even though you are winging them, but you cannot just wing things out of thin air. You have to have, you know, a cushion, you have to have resources. So, when you know when we would when I was doing mine, one of the things I would do would be would do improvising exercises, and the idea of the improvisation is that you have to go in with an empty mind, you know, or, or with an empty mindset and be ready for whatever comes. Uh, but in order to be ready for whatever comes, you have to have a set of tools. So I don't know if I know it sounds kind of abstract as a concept, but Basically, what I'm trying to say is it's you need to do these things a lot in order to be able to then just make them naturally and have them become second nature. So basically, it's, it's practicing. You have to like put a lot of work in things and not, th and not think that just because you have an idea is going to be great. It's not going to come out of the first try. You have to do it and do it and do it and do it many times before it actually becomes what you had in your head. That's a great insight. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, uh, someone you long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? It's hmm, a great question. Um, I would say someone that I mentioned already, it's, it's, um, Roddy Roy, someone that I learned a lot from. Yeah, I mean, he, his work is very driven by one um, one goal, and, and it's really about equality um, about, and about fairness. And, um, and it's just someone, as a person that I know that is very charismatic and someone that is very approachable, and that's something that I really admired from him as a photographer. Great suggestion. Thank you so much, man, for making the time with us today. Really, it was great to have a chance to talk with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And I have to say, your questions were very, very, very strong. And, and I don't know, I, I felt that it was more than anything that I've done before. It was less, um, I don't know, it was very insightful. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Omar for joining us on The Candid Frame. You can check out his work by visiting omarzerobles.com. Thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here at TCF. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. 
Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the Donate button on the Candid Frame website or in the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we present here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is... The Candid Frame.